What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Great to have you. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, to a new live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. My team and I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through their culture and operations. We work with forward-thinking and forward-reaching organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And we provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You learn more about us and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com and Gusto-Now.com. With us today is Gregory Milano. He's the founder and CEO of Fortuna Advisors, a thought leader and trusted advisor in helping clients transform their value creation potential through bold improvements to managerial insights, decisions, and behaviors. He's also author of Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. We'll be talking about the problem of short-termism in companies today, how pay structure can contribute to the problem or help ameliorate it, and how companies can build a culture of, of ownership to best overcome it. He joins us today from Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. Greg, welcome to Working on Purpose. Hi, Dr. Cortez. Thanks for having me on. You're so welcome. And look at this beautiful book you created. Oh my gosh, this <laughs> thing is gorgeous. So Thank you. Ha- happy to have you on, Greg. Thank you so much. So I want to get right into it because as, as you and I talked about before on air, I've hinted at the importance of addressing this notion of the quarterly earnings cycle here. But your book is very much about ending sh- corporate short-termism. So I think it probably it's important for us to start by talking about defining what you mean by short-termism and its connection to the quarterly earnings cycle. Let's start there. Yeah. I mean, the quarterly, quarterly earnings cycle is clearly one of the big problems because it gets people to focus too much on short periods of time, which takes their eye off the ball on, on longer periods of time. And it wasn't really the intent of the quarterly earnings process, right? It was just to get a good read on how things are going, a progress report, if you will. But over time, it's become such a big thing that you know companies, they make commitments of what they think they can do. And then if they feel like they're falling short, they have to find some way to try to meet their commitments. And unfortunately, sometimes they cut expenditures that are really investments in the future, could be advertising, could be training, could be you know research expenditures in order to meet this quarter's earnings. And maybe they do meet the earnings, but they've done something much worse for the future as a result. And what we've really, really been trying to work on over the years is a way to change the management paradigm inside the company so that they think more like long-term committed owners still worried about delivering current performance, but in the context of at the same time investing in the future. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you also mentioned in that sort of general conversation is you say that executives tend to fear that their share prices will be crushed if they don't deliver earnings per share or EPS that meets or exceeds analyst consensus estimates. I think that's really important to talk about as well. Yeah, we've done some really interesting research on what actually happens in the market. And we love quoting Margaret Mead, who said, what people say, what people do, and what they say they do are entirely different things. And- <laughs> 
it's as true about investors as it is about the rest of us. And you know what an investor says when you're speaking to them and the way the market actually behaves are actually quite different. Very often, you know, it sounds like the world is going to fall if you don't meet this quarter's earnings. We've done studies to show that within a quarter, the meeting of consensus earnings, that's the expectations of the analysts that cover a company, is actually really important to the share price in that quarter. But as soon as we go to longer periods of two or four or eight or 12 quarters, the amount of improvement matters so much more than the frequency with which you beat the analyst expectations. And you know, the worst thing is if you keep beating their expectations, but your performance is going down, you know, that's bad performance and that leads to very bad share price performance. So once we can get people off the myopic view of only the quarter and thinking about the longer term, they become a little more willing to miss sometimes what the analysts expect in order to do the right thing for the long term. And when they do that, they often get to much, you know, much better performance over those longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. And kind of taking it home a little bit further, because I really like to be able to share how you write, because it's very crisp and very compelling, easy to understand what you're saying. So you say one of the biggest obstacles to economic growth, employment expansion, financial security and social well-being is that companies are investing less and less in building their future and instead are devoting more and more capital to activities that provide a quick fix, but deliver few, if any, lasting benefits. So building what you were saying before, but really showing more of a bigger picture there. Yeah. And as far as people or companies investing less in the future. Just to be clear, there are some companies that are investing a lot in the future. Amazon, for example, over the mm-hmm. last 12 months has spent $51 billion on you know what the investors treat as R&D. And that's clearly a lot of investment in the future. And they've been doing that all along. It's why they weren't showing a lot of accounting earnings. They had decent earnings, but they were investing it all back into the company every year. And if you'd look back over time, that investment was only $1.7 billion back in 2010. So 1.7 billion then, 51 billion now. I did the math just before we came on here. That's a 37% growth rate in the amount of investment back into the business every year. And so there are some companies out there that are making big investments in the future, but in aggregate companies are investing less in growth and therefore they're growing less. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look, for example, at the 10 years through 2019, so kind of ending before COVID kicked in, and then you look at the 10 years before that, in the more recent period, revenue growth in aggregate by all the companies that were public for the whole period was about 3% less than it was in the prior period. Mm. So they're growing less. And their share performance, share price performance, the total returns they've delivered to shareholders is about half what it was in the prior period. So they're creating less value, they're growing less, and it's all because many of them, again, not all, Amazon and there are many other companies that are investing more, but many of them are investing less in the future. And, And I believe there are two things driving this. One is this myopic short termism. And the other is more and more of investment is in intangible assets, brands, technologies, things that are not don't appear on the financial balance sheet of the company. And those investments are expensed for accounting purposes. They're treated as just a period expense, even though they're obviously investments in the future. And so the pursuit of quarterly earnings puts extra pressure on those kind of investments. It doesn't put pressure on like building bricks and mortar, which is you know more the sort of old economy. It mm-hmm. puts pressure on building brands and building technologies, the whole expenditure on innovation, which is an increasing problem as we get into more and more of an economy that's dependent on innovation. Mm. Okay, so now that brings me to a place that I want to talk about a new term that you taught me that I've never heard before, which is really, I think, very pertinent to this whole discussion here, and that's sandbagging. So you say that from an internal corporate perspective, the problem is hands down the very worst managerial behavior problem. So if you could share with us more about what is sandbagging and why is it such a problem? 
Yeah, I didn't invent the term, just to be clear. But if I go back to its origin, it's actually uh, a military term. A sandbag is something they would pile up to fortify, you know, a field location. And you'd have these sort of piles of sandbags. When I was young, I played with G.I. Joe and we had little sandbags we would pile up. And so that's how I guess I first became familiar with it. But it's intended to protect you from enemy fire by having these bags of sand between you and where the enemy is. And in a similar way, sandbagging in a corporate way is to protect your bonus. And that's where the term really, or the analogy where the term really comes from. And what it actually happens is, you know, in most companies, you are measured on some measure of profit or what have you against your plan, right? You submit a budget or a plan to your corporate headquarters and they review it and they say, you know, you should be planning for this. And you say, well, I should be planning lower and they want higher and you go back and forth and back and forth and you kind of negotiate a target. And in that process, the manager of the business has an interest in trying to get the planned profit as low as possible so that whatever they wind up achieving, it looks really good against that goal and they make more money in terms of their financial bonus. So sandbagging is the act of understating what you think is going to happen. And that really isn't great for the business. You know, we're basically paying people to plan for mediocrity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in my experience, when people plan for mediocrity, that's often what results. So mm -hmm. you know, what we want is to get away from measuring people against their plan so that they don't have an incentive to sandbag. And instead, they have an incentive to reach for the stars. Mm -hmm. As I often say, I'd much rather have people plan for 10% growth and achieve 8% growth rather than planning for 2% growth and achieving 3% growth. And so, you know, when we focus more on absolute improvements and less on performance against plan, we eliminate the sandbagging and we encourage people much more like an entrepreneur to sort of plan for the to reach the stars rather than you know, planning for the lowest plan I can possibly get away with. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate how you explain things, Greg. It's very crisp, it's very clear, easy to follow. So thank you for that. Thank so you were talking about, uh, you're welcome. You were talking about just, you know, managers in general or corporate folks in general. So then if we build on to that, the next thing that I found terribly disturbing, if not even really kind of bordering on despicable, is you say that when surveying over 400 chief financial officers, you found that some 80% of those CFOs expressed their willingness to sacrifice shareholder value simply to meet or beat a quarterly earnings goal. Ick. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is very <laughs> disturbing. I mean, the research that I quoted in my book was from a 2000, a wonderful 2005 paper called The Economic Implications of Corporate Financial Reporting. It was produced by Professor John Graham and Campbell Harvey from Duke University and Shiva Ragapol of University of Washington in Seattle. And they surveyed over 400 executives. And it was just amazing. Over 80% of them openly admitted that they would take an action that limited the long-term value of the company in order to meet quarterly earnings. And I guess two things. One is if 80% of them admitted it, how many really do it and don't admit it? Yeah. <laughs> right. I was shocked that 80% would admit it. But, you know, and then on top of that, that was in 2005. And, you know, I've been doing what I'm doing for almost 30 years now. It seems to be getting worse to me, not better. So uh, the idea that, you know, more than 80% of companies, you know, actively, knowingly do things that are not in the long term interest of the company in order to meet a, a quarterly number is not good. Right. I mean, and, and but by the way, my experience doesn't counter that. I mean, I've worked with hundreds of companies over the last 30 years and and I, I, I see it all the time. I see, you know, companies getting toward the end of a year and realizing they're a little short of their plan and, you know, cutting some training program to reduce expense and and meet their, meet their budget or, you know, shifting an R&D project into next year, mm -hmm. delaying 
when it might eventually come to market in order to meet you know a quarterly number now or offering discounts to your customers to buy in December instead of January and you know you make less money overall but you get it in December instead of January and an owner would never do that an owner who founded and manages their own company would never play those games in order to try to get payments at the end of the year. They realize that's not in the, the good long-term interest of the company and, and then they would just never do it. But in public companies, we see it happen all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we are, we're talking about the problem of short-term. That's the whole idea for this segment is to really showcase this. And I think we're doing a fantastic job of that. And let's take another step here. This was also really, really fascinating. And it made me really think about, well, gosh, no wonder we have a problem with engagement if this is sort of an issue here. So you say that in some companies, things are so bad that the people preparing the plan know it has no meaning, that they are just compiling data and preparing materials as parts of a routine designed to check a box and take home a paycheck. Yeah, I mean, the truth is in most organizations, planning isn't really about planning at all. You know, planning should be about, you know, what do we want to try to achieve? What are the initiatives? What resources do we need? Let's, you know, marshal all those resources to achieve the initiatives. But in most companies, it's really, it's a game, right? It's a a negotiating game. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what I think I can accomplish and I'll I'll underplay all the good things that are going to happen and I'll overplay all the bad things that are going to happen. And then, you know, I submit a plan to headquarters or, or if it's the consolidated company, they submit their plan to the board of directors and the same thing happens. And then the other side, of course, looks at it and they come up with all these reasons why the goals should be higher. And, you know, there's this big negotiation that goes on and uh, nobody really, nobody really benefits. Right. And it, it, it makes the, it, it creates a, uh, a lack of transparency in the organization that's a problem. You know, if something good comes up down in the business, people have no incentive to tell their boss because then they'll just raise their targets, <laughs> you yeah. know? And so it's, it's uh, and that stifling of information can't be good. And it creates an environment where people are on opposite sides of the table. You know, the person goes to see their boss and we have opposite goals. You know, when we create more of an ownership culture where improvement matters, not performance against the goal, when we're planning, it's like we're on the same side of the table, right? If we can agree on things that will make performance better, we all get paid more, Mm -hmm. me and my boss. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's a much more constructive method of getting people to collaborate and work together than what the typical negotiating game that goes on. Yes, which is, of course, what we're going to talk about next. But to go ahead and let's go ahead and grab our first break. Where we've been on the air with Greg Milano. He's the author of Curing Corporate Short-Termism: Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been really talking about and trying to help showcase the problem of short-termism. After the break, we're going to tackle pay and performance and the model RCE that Greg and his team have come up with. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. 
Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. Before we get back into the program, I would like to invite you to check out my book called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause. It's on Amazon. I wrote it to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all its stakeholders. And I use the content as a basis for my vitally inspired leadership program and the Greg Augusto program. So hope you'll check it out with me. If you're just joining the program today, my guest is Greg Milano. He's the founder and CEO of Fortuna Advisors, a thought leader and trusted advisor in helping clients transform their value creation potential through bold improvements to managerial insights, decisions, and behaviors. He's also the author of Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. I'm your host, Dr. Lise Cortez. So for this next segment here, we want to focus on the, the problem of pay and the opportunity, as well as this measurement model you've come up with RCE. So before we do that, let's sort of situate the opportunity here. So you say in your book, strategic position comes from the differentiation achieved by developing distinctive and meaningful products or service attributes, stronger brands, and better manufacturing or service delivery processes. Many give too little credence to these important drivers of strategic thinking and care only about the financial numbers, which is a very bad idea. Goals are generally meaningless without a strategy to achieve them. So let's start there talking about pay and performance and where are we actually trying to get to? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about this because it's really the ultimate truth, right? Differentiation is where value comes from. If you have mm -hmm. a superior product, people are, are going to love that product and they're going to be willing to pay for it. And if you have superior ways of producing or delivering that product, you can do so more efficiently than others, more quicker than others. There are advantages that are beneficial to the consumer, which is what attracts them to want to buy your products and services and pay the prices that you ask. And so all value ultimately comes from doing something well and better than, than the competition. And unfortunately, the focus on short-term earnings and, and, and financial numbers in total often usurps some of the investment that produces the differentiation. I have worked with companies over the years where the, the management you know, had great brands when they got there. And then over time, they produced decent financial results, but the real value of the brands eroded. You know, that's a big problem. I think that companies should be willing to invest in the future and build brands and build technologies and build these differentiation capabilities while they're trying to deliver current performance and getting the two happening at the same time is, is really important. And if you just envision the typical company, and, and this is an example I created recently in, in a conversation with a client, so I'll repeat it here. Imagine a company that expects, you know, 5% growth per year in profits, just to make it a really simple example. And their R&D comes in and says, you know, we have a new product idea. We've got to spend some money. We're really confident uh, in it. And, you know, if we if we achieve what we think we can achieve, instead of having 5% growth over the next three years, we're going to have 10% growth over the next three years. But actually, the first year is going to be down. And then we're going to grow at more than 10% after that to sort of catch up to this 10% growth rate. And, you know, if you think about a, a, a senior management that has proposed this this investment in, in something that might create a brand new great product, you know, the, the reception depends a bit on who the company is. You know, if you presented that inside of Amazon, they would jump at it, right? They're not worried about today's profit. They're worried about constantly building what's better and better for the customer. And, uh, you know, they want to make money over time, not, not, not so worried about it right now. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, I guess for those people listening, think about, you know, would your company jump at that? Or would they be, oh no, we can't miss next quarter's earnings. So we'll have to think about that project some more. Um, unfortunately, that's that's all too often the case. They don't want to make those investments that will lead to new, better products, new, better brands, uh, largely because they don't want to miss next quarter's earnings. They 
they, they feel like if they just smear a little bit of research money around so they can tell everybody they're working on innovation and so forth, that's really the goal. It's not really creating, you know, breakthroughs and, and creating real innovation that matters to them. It's a matter of being able to basically tell people we're spending money on innovation, while in reality, they're mostly just focused on small incremental improvements period by period. Yeah. So missing the forest for the trees, it seems to me. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so then adding to that, we, we wanted to focus on this segment then. You've already talked about you know the, the problem of continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. um, so now if we can go ahead and add on, you talk about in your book about in addition to these complicating challenges, are the counterproductive incentives provided by today's prevailing practices of performance measurement and compensation. So could you speak generally about what's problematic about them? Well, incentive plans, as I, as I said earlier, incentive plans usually are based on measuring something, some measure of performance against its plan, against mm -hmm. the plan of that measure. Yep. Yep. And, and we think it's better to focus on continuous improvement. And Actually, the term continuous improvement throws some people because they think... Yeah, you said it, that in your book. It's like every year I've got to improve. I can't improve every year. I'm in a, a business with maybe commodity volatility, commodity price volatility or something like that. Um, but if, uh, the way I like to think about it is it's cumulative improvement. You know, how much improvement can I generate over the next three to five years? Forget about the pattern of how I'm going to get there. It might go up and down a little bit, you know, based on externalities and patterns of investment internally and so forth. But... What I really want to know is where am I going to get to three to five years from now? And if I focus on that and I create an incentive system that encourages me to focus on that and not to focus so much on the individual quarter and year, I get much better behavior. And, you know, we find that one of the real big problems inside companies is they use too many measures of performance and each one of them is incomplete. So they'll look at growth, they'll look at profit margin, they'll look at return on capital, they'll look at free cash flow. They've got a bunch of measures. They've got this this uh, you know menagerie of measures, if you will. And everything they look at, every decision they look at, you know, three measures get better and two measures get worse. Is it good or is it bad? I have no idea. Am I going to make more money? Is it going to make the share price go up? It's really you know, very unclear. And you know, and each of the signals that they get individually would tell you to do something or not do something, but collectively it all doesn't really tell you much. It's just like a cloud of information. And this is why companies very often struggle to make decisions. Um, you know, I've worked with companies that are making small, small acquisitions. They're not very sizable in, in the context of the size of the company. And they have meeting after meeting after meeting. They can't really make a decision because they don't have any real clear answer to what, what value is and how value is, is created. So, you know, this um, focus on measuring, you know, too many incomplete measures against plans leads to all sorts of behavior problems. And in fact, I spoke recently at a conference on, on uh, uh, it was really an HR oriented conference. And I spoke specifically on uh, what is the behavior that your incentive plan is motivating. And afterwards I asked uh, a handful of people that I, I met with one-on-one -on -one after my session, you know, do you ever in your process think about the behavior that's being motivated by, we were specifically talking about executive compensation yeah. and they all shook their heads now that they spend their time looking at what everybody else is doing and what they want to do is be somewhere in the middle so they can't be criticized for doing anything wrong. Even when they know they're encouraging bad behavior, as long as it's in the safe zone of kind of doing what everybody else is doing, it's okay. And so this problem really perpetuates itself in an unhealthy way. Oh, yeah. You talk about that very, very clearly in your book, by the way. It's very well explained. So right. then that then cues us up beautifully then, Greg, to talk about CEO pay. 
and you say it's not that it, that it's, it's excessive pay is the issue, but rather how they are paid in a way that is virtually independent of performance. So help us understand what's the disconnect here. So there are two problems. Okay, there are there are bad compensation programs, but there's also bad journalism. To be fair, and so let me talk a little bit about that first, and then I'll come back to the bad compensation problem. Journalists only complain about the amount of pay. Right. Oh, the right. CEOs are being yes. paid too much. They try to yes. create this like almost like class warfare kind of, you know, uh, emotion. And, you know, does everybody get upset about the money that like star athletes are paid or that like, you know, celebrities are paid? Not not so much, but they get upset about, you know, CEOs, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is almost a billionaire. And did he create more value than the CEO who managed a company with 100,000 employees to, you know, to, to grow employment and grow the share price and, and do so forth? And so I think the amount of pay uh, it shouldn't be the focus, um, and, and that's really a problem of journalism. To me, the bigger problem is how they get paid. And some years ago, we published an article, and we plotted on one axis the amount of money the CEO was paid, and on the other axis the share price performance, and it was a cloud of data with no meaningful relationship at all, and that to me is the problem. I want a system where when people do good things that create value, they get paid more, and when they don't, they get paid less, just like an owner. Right. I want them to be treated just like an owner. I don't want them to be able to negotiate their way out of problems and get target relief, performance target relief to get a bonus they don't really deserve and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, we see funny things happen, too. Um, if, if a compensation committee sets the targets a little tough one year and the management does well in terms of their share price, but they don't get paid that well, they go out of their way to kind of make up for it the next year. And they wind up with really just exacerbating this negotiation problem and, and further disassociating performance from uh, from pay or pay from performance, which is, is really not really not 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 great. Uh, you know, I want I want CEOs to earn more than star athletes and uh, and and uh, celebrities when when they're really running a successful company and creating a lot of value. And but I also want their pay to drop precipitously. You know, they're all pretty wealthy people to begin with. They don't have to have pay this year to survive. And so and to get them really motivated to not have a really bad year, the pay has got to go down when we get to the other side. And that that sort of sensitivity to pay of pay to performance is really not great. Uh, we, we just published uh, an article based on some research I did with a couple of colleagues showing that, um, you know, measuring just measuring improvements in performance the way, you know, we do, which we'll get into, I'm sure, in a little bit, uh, provides so much better linkage or so much stronger correlation to share price performance than what actually happens inside of companies. And so whatever they're doing now is really just disassociating pay from performance. And it's really hard to say that we're motivating any good behavior when there's really no correlation between what it is we're trying to motivate and how much pay we're giving. So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a mess. It's, a, it's really a mess and it, it, needs, it needs to be fixed. It needs to the alignment uh, needs to be improved if we ever want people to really focus on on embracing that long-term value creation view. Mm -hmm. Well, and it seems to me that what you came up with here, uh, your RCE, does give companies a consistent framework to make high-level decisions regarding strategy, resource allocation, and investments. And I would, I think, I would imagine too, compensation, but maybe that's not true. But if you would, at this point, tell us more about RCE, your model. Okay, so um, RCE is is uh, is the acronym for residual cash earnings. Um, in reality, when we use it inside of a company, we name it after the company. So it's company name cash earnings. So each company has kind of a 
a measure that is uh, that people feel like is their own, which is I think good, good rather than having some outside trademarked acronym. But the the principles behind it are very simple, and the way I explain it to people is not by trying to explain finance, but just think about a simple story. Let's imagine, you know, if you're one of the listeners, imagine you open a small retail store and you invest your life savings in it, and also one of your neighbors invests in it as well. It's your store, but but they're they're an investor side by side with you. And just as you get started, that that neighbor says to you, you know, I expect a return on my investment. And you say, of course you do. And they say, well, I've done some analysis and I've talked to my, my accountant and a few other people, and I'd like you to earn 10% of my money. And you say, okay, that's great. So at the end of the year, you can figure out how much profit, how much cash profit that I generate and what would I have needed to generate for it to earn a 10% for me and the other investor. And I can compare the two. And if I had generated more profit than covering that 10%, what we call a capital charge, if I can generate more profit than that, then I've created value. And if I've generated less profit than that, I've, I've, I've uh, destroyed value. And RCE is just the difference between the cash profit I generate and that 10% of investment. Actually, these days with interest rates where they are, it's usually more like 8%, but I use 10% because the math is easy. But the point is, it's, it's very simple. It's just a matter of treating the expected return of your investors like any other cost. And after that, it's just like trying to maximize profits. And so now, you know, when you think about, um, you know, in my store, I can invest in growth. I can get more investment from the outside and invest in growth. As long as the growth produces at least a 10% return, I'm going to improve my, my RCE. Uh, I can improve performance. I can reduce costs. I can, I can uh, improve in, in my, uh, the quality of my products such that I can charge a higher price. Uh, I can uh, carry less inventory, which ties up less capital. There are things I can do to improve my biz business, and every one of them has a very direct and tangible relationship to how it improves the dollars of RCE. So now I have a, a management team that looks at this really pretty simple measure and says, okay, we're thinking about investing in uh, a new warehouse. What's the RCE? If it's positive, it's going to add to our RCE. We go do the warehouse. And if it's negative, we, we, we don't. And when we think about tying this back to compensation, that last part of the equation is the important part. Because if somebody Let's say that you know you're the you're the boss, Elise, and, and I'm the the uh, I have a, I'm running one of the business units, and I come to you to ask for your approval for my warehouse. You may or may not approve it, but before you even consider it, you know I believe in it because if I invest in that warehouse and it doesn't cover the ten percent, I'm going to make less money. Mm -hmm. I can't negotiate a new target, a new budget next year. If the RCE goes down, I'm going to get paid less money. We always measure RCE against last year, and so it creates this feeling of ownership where I'm treating the company's capital like kind of as if it was my own money. And that's really the beauty of RCE. It, it gets people to think and act more like those long-term committed owners. Uh, even if it takes a little time for that RCE to get turned positive, as long as it eventually does, uh, you know, I'm going to get paid for it. And that is just a gorgeous opportunity right there, Greg. So one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on the show right there. So let's grab our last break. We've been on the air with Greg Milano. He's the author of Curing Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth versus Current Earnings. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been talking about the problem of performance models, pay and performance models. After the break, we're going to get into now creating a culture of ownership. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. 
To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. One other bit of news I want to share with you is that the anthology I've been curating for the last two years has been released. It's a collection of 25 stories from women across the globe who share their intimate details of finding their purpose and what they're now doing to serve from it. It's called Passionately Striving and Why, an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose. It's on Amazon. I'm actually so proud of that I could bust. If you're just joining us today, my guest is Greg Milano. He's the founder and CEO of Fortuna Advisors, a thought leader and trusted advisor in helping clients transform their value creation potential through bold improvements to managerial insights, decisions, and behaviors. He's also the author of Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. I'm your host, Dr. Lise Cortez. So for this last bit, Greg, we're going to bring it home, right? So I just think that what you have created here, this idea of creating a culture of ownership is so exciting, so compelling, and exactly why I wanted to share you with, with, our, with our listeners around the world, because I think we have a perfect opportunity in this pandemic to recreate how business is done, how it's organized, how we hire people, train them, reward them, all that. And you've got some such a great example here in doing it. So you say in the book, you say, you, t- you tell us, um, you, you say that to reinforce the longer term focus, management should seek to create an ownership culture in which managers throughout the organization participate in and assume responsibility for decisions, results, and consequences. When each manager and each employee accept their business obligations as if they own them, organizations create more value. Sounds great to me. It is great. <laughs> um, you know, when, when managers know that they're going to be objectively held accountable for outcomes. They just, they make better decisions. And objective accountability, when you say those words, people think, well, that means I'm going to you know, crack the whip if they don't perform, but it, it works the other way too. The manager has certainty about getting paid when they do perform. And so it's, it's certainty up and it's certainty down. They become more eager to take actions that create value, more, more eager to, to pursue uh, what they really believe in and more eager to cut out what they really don't. In almost every company I've ever worked with, there were all sorts of failed initiatives that are still being funded because nobody wants to admit failure. And this creates a huge incentive to stop those things and redirect the resources toward things that are more productive and more more effective. And that re-resource allocation is a, is a really important part of this, getting people to, to think about you know placing bets in, in, the, in the best places is, is really important. It's, it's less about how you justify what you're doing and more about just trying to do what you really believe in. And, mm-hmm. Most people find that environment. If you can, if you can change the, the sort of measurement and incentive framework, as I've described, and also really change the culture, because it's not an automatic. You have to really work at changing the culture and the behavior. But if you can get that to happen, people really like it. It's the transparency and the objectivity of it is actually much better than you know constantly gaming and negotiating and all the things that happen, unfortunately, in far too many companies. Yeah. So now, Greg, seems to me you're talking about what I, what I, what's the purpose of the show? How do we create environments where people can actually thrive and bring their best and do their best? That's that sounds like a perfect sandbox to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is really great. I think what I do now, which has evolved a bit over the years from being sort of a financial expert 30 years ago, is unbelievably satisfying because you really see 
creativity, you see innovation, you see people that are, they feel better about what they're doing. They feel more convinced that they're on the right path. They're more willing to invest in the people around them and, 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 and do things that leave the company in better shape when they leave than it was when they got there. Uh, it's, it's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Indeed. I feel very similar about my work. That's beautiful. So let's help our listeners and viewers understand you talk about five tenets underlying an ownership culture. Will you talk about each one? Sure. Uh, so there are five, uh, five things that we've come up with that really uh, illustrate how well a company embraces an ownership culture. And when we first meet a company, we actually interview people around the company in different roles, different functions, different levels. And we ask them specifically about these five uh, tenets of, of an ownership culture. And we learn a lot about the good and the bad just by asking questions about these five things. And let's mm -hmm. go through them uh, as you requested. First is spending money like it's your own. And I've kind of already addressed this a little bit, but when we expose people to outcomes, good and bad, uh, they're much more careful in how they spend resources. They don't waste money, uh, but they're also actually more willing to invest money into good things. And I've, I've seen situations in companies where a really good opportunity comes up in the middle of the year and somebody says, oh yeah, let's ask for money to, to invest in that in the next planning cycle next year. And you know, it's like my head does a complete circle around like some kind <laughs> of a, a crazy doll, like, wait a minute, shouldn't we do this right now? Uh, it's not in my budget, you know? Uh, and so spending money like it's yours, it often leads to being careful about it, what you spend on things that you wouldn't spend your own money on, but it also makes you more eager to spend money on things that are good investments without waiting for the next budget cycle. Uh, the second principle is, um, is extreme prioritization. And I really love this one because it's, it's uh, almost every company I meet has a problem with prioritization. So it's, it, you know, actually getting them to have, you know, real extreme prioritization is really, really important. I mean, most companies just kind of smear resources across all different initiatives and opportunities. And they try to hedge their bets by kind of putting money in a little bit here, a little bit there. And they don't realize that, you know, 80% of the potential value creation comes from 20% of the activities. I mean, the Pareto principle applies very well in business. We see it all the time. And once you embrace that principle and you have something like our RCE measure to clarify where you're really creating value and where you're not, what we want is for them to really disproportionately invest in the really good things and stop investing in the in the weak or really bad things. You know, it's like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett doesn't just put a little money on every stock out there. He tries to figure out the ones he really thinks are going to go up and he focuses billions of dollars in in those companies. And that's really that's exactly the way we want people acting inside the company, just like a long term committed owner. The third one is embracing a willingness to fail. And sometimes people say, well, how does that go along with prioritization? Because it means, you know, sort of experimenting on things you're not sure are going to turn, uh, work out. But uh, the the source of all innovation is experimentation and, and sort of just trying things. And so trying to get a more of a willingness to fail where people are, are willing to uh, try things they're not 100% certain of is difficult in a company where you're measuring performance against the plan. Nobody wants to put anything in their plan that might not happen. And so you wind up with very few initiatives, the only things you think are definitely going to happen and the, the experimentation stops, the innovation stops, and, and that leads to a, a degrading of the business over time. So, you know, we want we want to create an environment where people are willing to experiment. They might have five initiatives, and if three of them work out, that's great. But in most companies, you get waxed for the two that didn't work out. But now we want to celebrate the three that did work out, and and that's that's a culturally a, a big improvement. The fourth one is uh, doing more and talking less, and uh, it's it's another big problem, especially in big bureaucratic companies where. 
you know, every meeting seems to end in, well, let's study it further. <laughs> and you know, they go on and on and on. They never make a decision. Um, you know, founder owners know that if they make an acquisition that creates $2 million of value, but they spend $3 million studying it, it's not really a, a good thing. Uh, and so doing more and talking less is really important. And lastly, remembering that it's about both the short and the long term. We've talked a lot about long term, so I won't go into this one too much, but just being long term isn't good either. You need to have both. I want owner managers tend to want to drive performance as hard as anybody, but they would never get there by sacrificing the future. And so we want both to be on the minds of management all the time. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, Greg. Thank you. That's just really ac- gives us access to that. So, of course, you talk about the importance to, to reinforce the, these business management processes and all the, the training and communication that goes with it. That's so important. But I want to really share share with our listeners and viewers the promise of your book, I, as I see it. So I'm going to read it and have you comment on it, and then we're getting darn close to the end of the show. So you say companies that embrace an ownership culture to promote a balanced long-term outlook and make will make more good investments, will be more accountable for delivering desirable returns on those investments, and will create more value. They will go by what 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 investors do, and uh, sorry, they will go by what investors do rather than what they say, and they will generate more cash flow, deliver higher returns, and see their share price rise faster than at, than their peer companies. Most important, they will feel less concerned about what their share price is doing next week or next month, and more concerned about what their share price will be doing in the long run. That's it. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous solve <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 important that people understand that at the core it's all about human behavior it's all about corporate culture and it's about helping companies to become better versions of themselves and when we replace a collection of poor performance measures and give that give misguided signals with one good measure that gives really clear signals you know people like it they make better decisions but they just like it they like the clarity and the simplicity of it all you know, when we replace poor incentives with you know clear, simpler approaches that you know pay more when people do well and pay less when people do poorly, they tend to like it. Even in years when they don't get paid well, they kind of feel like it's fair because they knew the deal, and it wasn't like somebody just you know negotiated too tough of a goal for them or something. They kind of knew the deal; it was fair, and in good years they do well. And actually, one example of that that's really good to really emphasize this point is you know when COVID hit. One of my partners called the CFO of a client and said, what are you going to do? Are you going to make any adjustments to your incentive plan? And he said, no, we're not making any adjustments. If performance goes down this year, as we expect it will, we'll get paid less. And then next year, if we can get performance back up, we'll get paid more. And, you know, just like owners, that's that's the deal we have. And that's not exactly what happened at most companies. So an ownership mentality, a true, authentic ownership mentality really does get people thinking longer term. And that's what's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, Greg. Um, you know this show was listened to by people across the world. You know that the premise is being able to create an environment where people can actually bring their best, be and be incentivized, motivated, motivated to bring their best, and we do business that betters the world. What would you like to leave our listeners with today? Just a really short message. Um, we believe and have proven with a lot of research that you can't really create long-term value for shareholders without creating long-term value for all stakeholders. And Managements that worry about their employees, about their customers, about their suppliers, about the communities they serve, tend to be viewed as operating with higher purpose. And we've found and shown in a lot of our research that companies that are recognized for operating with higher purpose produce more growth, they produce better profit margins, they are valued at higher valuation multiples, they produce higher total shareholder return. So I just want to be clear that you know, when we talk about an authentic long-term you know, ownership culture, it's not just to create value for the shareholders. To be successful at it, you really need to create value for all stakeholders. And, and that's really you know, at the core of our, of our message. 
which completely aligns with mine, Greg. So really, really appreciate having you on the show, your your thoughtfulness, your ability to really explain really complicated things in a, in a very easily accessible way and bringing an opportunity and, a, and a, a promise that I think the world really needs. So thank you for, for sharing. No, thank you for having me on, Elise. I appreciate it. So welcome. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Greg Milano, his book, or the work he and his team do at Fortuna Advisors, go to fortuna-advisors.com. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a new recorded podcast. We were on the air with Stephen Morris, a culture, brand, and business consultant, talking about his new book called A Beautiful Business, an actionable manifesto to create an unignorable business with love at the core. Our conversation was both incredibly inspiring and an invitation to you to make your own beautiful business by design and lift your stakeholders and community higher than you originally aimed to do. Next week, we'll be on the air with Melanie Pump, author of Detox, Managing Insecurity in the Workplace. You'll learn how to recognize toxicity in your workplace, how toxic work environments stifle innovation, collaboration, succession planning, and productivity, and how you can instead create a healthy and secure environment where people thrive. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.